Wake Up with Patty Catter. I love the show. I never miss an episode. It's the best. I turn it on and turn it up. Hello, everybody. You're listening to and watching Wake Up with Patty Catter, and I'm your host, Patty Catter. Today, I have Steve Sims on the show, and Steve is a dream maker. So, That is pretty interesting to me right away. Um, A lot of you who know me know that I like to surprise people with different little things, but my little surprises are like free coffee or something. (laughs) Steve overdoes that. Like he's phenomenal. Steve, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. And you're not just a normal dream maker either, right? (laughs) You cater to some pretty big celebrities. Is that right? I, I realized years ago that if I focused on people that were really, really wealthy, there was a higher prob- uh, probability I would get paid. So yeah. I literally just, from a young age of being poor, I always went after rich people. And so at the peak, we had 93 clients, which for any industry would probably make you bankrupt. But two thirds of those were billionaires. So you really didn't have to worry about the quantity when you had the serious quality. Mm -hmm. So tell us, just tell us a little bit about your background first, where you came from. You mentioned that you were poor. So um, how was your childhood? Oh, that's, uh, it's it's funny you brought that up. Um, And so I'll own it. I was raised in East London. Uh, My family uh, were bricklayers. My dad was a bricklayer. His brother, granddad was a bricklayer. My cousins were a bricklayer. So I, we never had money. We didn't have any new car. First ever takeaway food I had was with my girlfriend when we were 18 years old. So wow. I grew up thinking we, we were the epitome of poor, okay? And I grew up a little bit resentful of being poor, you know, to, to be honest and to get it out. And I left school at the age of 15, um, couldn't even spell college. It was never even a consideration. Uh, I left school at the age of 15, following day, I'm on the building site. That was my life. Um, And I was aggravated. Like all entrepreneurs, we're aggravated. You know, we know something's not right. And as I say, that on top of me thinking I was poor, therefore, you know, um, I've been dealt a bad hand. I won't say that I was resentful. I wasn't. But I did have a chip on my shoulder. And it wasn't until my early 20s that I realized, hang on, I wasn't poor. I was just financially restricted. Because I was always loved. I was always tucked in. I was always fed. I wasn't getting prime steaks or anything, but I was never hungry. I was never not protected. So how was I poor? Well, just the money aspect. And so I suddenly realized that my family had actually given me a gift. Yeah, I know what it's like. If I get, a, if I get someone go, hey, I need to speak to you, Steve, and they're in Ukraine or they're in Japan, and it happens to be one o'clock in the morning, I get up. I don't bitch about it. I get up. I shower so I'm all fresh and you know I get there and if they don't show up for the meeting oh well I'm there the following night when they do so you know I think I was installed your word is your bond and what hard work gets you so now in a world where we can outsource so much there's a difference between being prepared to do it and willing to do it and a lot of people just aren't willing to do hard work and I don't want to do hard work but hey when the shit hits the fan, I'm all there. And I think that's the big difference. So that I would say is my big, was my big mind shift difference. And luckily I found it in my early twenties. Mm-hmm. So what happened one day you just woke up and you're like, gee, I'm going to 
make dreams of celebrities come true. God, no. It's <laughs> it's you're stunned. It's stunning where you get this um these revelations from. It can just be someone that says something to you at a bus stop or someone that says something in a relationship or something that bad happens to you that suddenly propels you. But I was on the building site. I'm now about 16 years old and I'm lumping a pile of bricks on my shoulder up a scaffolding to give to the bricklayers on the scaffolding. Now on this one of scaffolding, it was my dad was right next to the the ladder. Next to him, my uncle, his brother. Next to him, my two cousins. Now I'm 16. The other one was like 19 and the other one was like 24. So I was being, I was bullied by them all. And then next to them was my granddad in his 80s. Now I saw my entire family tree. I saw my lifeline ending with my granddad at the end. And it was such a vivid, uh, startling visual that I froze. And my dad was like, put the bricks down, get some more. So I went off and I did that, but it stuck in me. And then came tea break, it was like 10 o'clock in the morning. I'm in England, it's raining. And we had this caravan that never had any wheels. Then we would jump in there, just kind of keep warm and get out of the rain. So stank with like about 30 bricklayers in this caravan. And my granddad was next to the fireplace. So I came in and went, you know, running up to him. And I kind of crouched down. There's all these bricklayers. There's all this noise and people chomping and making tea and eating sandwiches. And I ran up to him and I'm like, granddad, granddad. And he didn't even look at me. I remember from his thermos, he was just pouring a cup of tea to try and warm himself up. And he was a big fella, like seven foot. He was a monster of an Irish lad. And um, I went, granddad, granddad. And he was like, yeah. And he looked down as he was blowing in his tea. And I went, did you think you would be doing this when you're this old? Now, in in respect, that's the kind of question that I should have got a smack in the mouth with, (laughs) you know? He didn't even skip a beat. He was blowing into his tea, never even looked at me. And he said, son, if you don't quit today, you'll be me tomorrow. Wow. And I was like, and the entire caravan went quiet. I was just oblivious to everything. And I was like, oh, my God. And then the siren went off. Everyone started piling out of the caravan. And I ran up to my dad. And my dad had a little nickname called Cuz. And uh, he was an Irish guy. But my granddad's six foot. I was seven foot. My dad was like five foot six. Something went wrong somewhere. But, you know, he was the short one of the entire clan. Um, which he made up by, you know, being quite punchy to try and prove himself, you know. So it was that kind of family. Um, but he didn't like being called dad on the building site. So as I came out, I was like, dad, dad, dad. And he's looking at me going, shut up, shut up. What do you want? What do you And I ran up to him and I was like, dad, I went up the scaffold and there you were, there's uncle and then my cousin, there's your and then grand. And so I came down, I saw granddad, I said, grand, we, you know, if, did you ever think you'd be, you know, doing this? When you're... And I just blurted out all of what had happened that morning. Now, as I was doing that, granddad walked behind me. And again, seven foot. You know when a guy's seven foot is behind you. And he walked behind me. And I knew he was there. Peripherally, I'd seen him walk up. And he stopped. And I said, I don't want to be granddad tomorrow. I've got to quit. And I remember my dad. And again, dad's five, six. I was maybe five, ten at the time. Granddad said. So I saw my dad look up at granddad and look back at me. And he went, we're light-handed. You finish up Friday. And I went, done. And so he went home and he went, Steve's off. Steve's going to try, you know, what he does. My dad was fine with it. Regretfully, I never, ever got to see my granddad again and tell him the impact he had. Um, But my mum, oh, my God, my mum was never the same. 
my mom was like, you think you're better than us? And I was like, no, no, no. I think I'm better than, than this. You know, surely there's something out there for me. You should be wanting me to go and find it. And she was like, no, you think you're better than us. That's all she could ever say. And so my relationship with my mom was never the same again. Um, my dad wanted me to go out there and he went, go out there, you know, mess it up, disrupt, you know, get it, do it. You know, he didn't know what I was going to do. This was in the 80s. So I didn't have Instagram to validate how inadequate my life or education was. You know, we didn't have any of those things. But he was like, you go for it, son. You know, go, go punch, go punch above your weight level. Try it, you know. And again, we had no idea what it was. And like all entrepreneurs, we jump out of the frying pan into a volcano. You know, we don't think, we just do. And so I started uh, probably about a three to four year try everything. I tried working in a kitchen. I tried insurance sales, cake sales, truck driver, uh, stockbroker. I tried so many different jobs, failed at them all. And one day I got a job as a, as a doorman. Now I'm a big, ugly fella. So being on the door of a nightclub just seemed to be what God built me for. And I just thought, this is it. I'm in the lowest part of my life now. I'm a doorman, you know? I wanted to be, because this was the 80s and the 90s, you know, stockbrokers and Gordon Gecko and bright red Porsches. I wanted that. And here I am on a motorbike that would start when it wanted to, being paid to slap people in a nightclub. You know, I thought I couldn't get further away from where I want. But you know, the funny thing was, I suddenly started to see people coming into my clubs and they had money. And I remember the first time I saw someone pay their bar tab by just throwing down the card on the tab, not even checking the bar tab. Now, this is a shock horror for anyone out there, but nightclubs try to pilfer the extra few drinks off of you to ramp up their profits. You know, it's what nightclubs do. This guy, I thought to myself, this guy's so wealthy, he doesn't even have to check his tab. And I was like, oh my, it was like suddenly meeting Elon Musk. You know, you just go, oh my God, this guy must be the wealthiest man. He's not even, I can tell you to the cent what was in my bank account. I was that poor, you know? This guy had so much money, he didn't have to check his bar tab. And I was like, oh. So I just decided that I wanted to find a way of getting them to talk to me. And it started off because I was a doorman, I knew where all the nightclubs were. So I became the oracle, the Google ahead of my time of nightlife. And then I started closing down clubs and throwing my own parties. And then I started taking over penthouses and started throwing them on yachts. And I thought to myself, I don't want a party where a poor person's at. Now, before everyone bitches at me, I know what it's like to be poor. We spend the entire night nursing one beer, you know? I didn't want that. So I would sell access into my parties for like $200 to $500 to get in, okay? And I would throw them in affluent areas, and I wouldn't tell people where they were until a week away. And the reason I wouldn't tell people where, uh, where they were was because I didn't know. If I sold 50 tickets, I'd get a venue that could look after 60 people. If I sold 100 tickets, I'd get a and, and that's why I did it. I would sell the tickets first and then get a party. And then something, again, bad happened to me. I got, uh, this guy came up to me. Uh, from the food and beverage, whatever, and said, we got to shut you down because you don't have a liquor license. So this would be your last night. And I said to him, I said, well, you know, how much is a liquor license? And liquor licenses aren't expensive. It was like 500 bucks. And I remember getting money out. He was like, no, 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 you don't realize, boy. He said, you know, you're selling alcohol here. 
you're going to need to apply for that license. That could be a year, two years away. And I'm like, no, 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 I've got another party in two weeks' time. He's like, no, no, no. And he said to me, he said, all the time you're selling uh, alcohol, he said, uh, you need a license. He said, give it away, you don't need us. And I went, hey, what? And he went, if you give it away, you don't need us. And I went, hang on a minute. So the liquor license is only there for food and beverage if I sell it. And he went, yeah. And he's, of course, he's looking at me thinking, <laughs> you know, what's this guy? And I went, I don't need you. <laughs> and I increased, my, I increased my ticket price to like 800 bucks to go to a party. But all food and drink was in, included. So two things happened. One, I didn't need this annoying liquor license. And two, only rich people that could afford 800 bucks to go out for a party were now showing up. I remember my attendance went from like 60 to about 40, but every single one of those 40 was, were millionaires. I was having rollers turn up and Porsches and Ferraris, and all of a sudden I was getting really up. So I just kept, and I realized the richer people, they looked at things differently. They liked smaller groups. They liked intimacy. They liked being around a group of equals. So it just, it just worked. So all the things that I was doing wrong actually turned out to be things that were working well for me. And along the way, and understand this, and I hope we're not going off on a tangent, I only had one goal, to talk to a rich person and understand why are you rich and I'm not. I didn't want to be a party promoter. I don't like parties. I don't like noise. I don't like smoking. I don't like yelling. I don't like any of that. So I didn't want to do it. But if I could get 50 rich people there, I'd be there just to talk to 50 rich people. So basically, I was building a Trojan horse. I was going in under this concierge that could get anything, but I just wanted to speak to millionaires. And along the way, people were like, oh, you, you seem as though you know, do you know so-and-so? And I'd be like, yeah. And then I'd try and find a way to get to know that person. Or they'd say, oh, you know, I'm going to Monaco. Do you know anyone in Monaco? I'd be like, sure, I do. I didn't, but I'd try to find a way of doing it. And my brand of this I can over IQ concept, I suddenly got approached by jewelry firms like Piaget, Tiffany, Cartier. Can you help us with our event? Because you seem to know how to put an event together. And I'm like, yeah. All of a sudden, not only am I learning how rich people think, I'm learning how rich companies communicate and sell to rich people. And then I got involved in events like the Grammys, the Kentucky Derby, the New York Fashion Week, just finished off working uh, for about eight years with Sir Elton John for his Oscar party. So over a 25-year period, I went from doing nightclubs, closing them down, to working for the most affluent people in the planet with the sole reason to understand how you look at things differently to me. Wow, that is so interesting. So I read someplace that you make celebrity dreams come true. What does that mean? So a couple of things I learned across the way, we're actually fighting to tell people what we really want. And social media has a large part in that. But if I said to you, hey, I can get you anything you want, Patty, what would it be? You know, you'd be scared to tell me over a public radio, okay, or any kind of public forum. And so you dilute your dream a little bit. You know, so I noticed that. So what I did is I noticed something very early on. Listen to what the person asks for and then give them what they lust and desire for. And they're different things. So what I first started doing was I wanted to challenge me. So people would come up to me and they go, oh, yeah, I'd like to meet the rock band Journey. This is an actual example of what we did. Mm -hmm. And um, the guy said, oh, I want to meet the rock band. And I, I used the most 
I, and I'm not going to swear, but I use the rudest word, the most confrontational, combative word there is in the human language. And I use it a lot. And if you'll let me, I'll use it now. You can use it. Yeah. All right. Why? Now, a lot of people may have been thinking I was going to use a different word, but the word why confronts people different manners. Like if you, I get people text me, and this is just a warning if anyone's going to text me. I get people text me going, hey, Steve, if you're in the area, let's have a beer. And I will respond with one word, why? Hmm. And I'll get people coming back to me going, well, you're a rude prick. You know, I thought you were cool. I don't want, and they get defensive. And then I get other people go, good question, Steve. I wanted to talk to you about this. And then I can make a decision based on the response. And I'll be like, okay, yes, I can help you. Or no, that doesn't appeal to me. I can make a decision. But more people will need that question why. So this guy comes to me, true story, comes to me and he says, hey, I want to meet the rock band Journey. And I said, oh, that sounds fantastic. Why? And he gives me, oh, they're a great band. They're brilliant. I said, that's that's good. Yeah, I know they're a great band. But why you? Why now? And I asked why. Um, Quick plug of the book. I wrote a book called Blue Fishing, The Art of Making Things Happen. And in there, I talk about ask why three times to get down to the real reason. So I asked this guy why a few times. And then he turned around to me and he said, look, and he's a CNBC commentator. He said, when I was young, I used to sleep on my mate's couch at college. And to make money, I was the lead singer of a Journey tribute band. Okay. He said, now that made me money through college. And I was pretty good at it. And he said, but then I got into finance, made money, lost money, made more money, lost more money, got into relationships, lost relationships, got healthy, got ill, made money, lost money. Basically, that's the zigzag of life. And he said, but every time I hit a high point, I celebrated with singing Journey. Every time I hit a low point, Journey encouraged me back up again. He was a massive fan of the rock band Journey. So I said to him, well, okay, so now that I know that Journey was the theme tune to your movie, should the climax of that movie be you bumping into them backstage, shaking their hands, and then forgetting your name by the time they got to the changing room? Really be the finale you want. And he was like, no, but I don't know what I said. Don't worry about the what else. I just want to know the reason. So with that, I actually went to the rock band journey, spoke to him, chatted with him, got involved in a few things. We ended up bringing him up on stage in San Diego, and he actually sang five tunes live on stage with the entire band uh, at the, what was called the Cricket Amphitheater like about three years ago. Photographs, pyrotechnics, the whole works. He is now registered as the shortest termed lead singer of the rock band journey. <laughs> we That's took awesome. what he wanted and really got him what he needed to achieve the finale of that movie. So with me, and I do this within my coaching and, and now within my entrepreneur, I find out what people are looking for and I go, okay, why is that important to you? Have you noticed how many people have turned around and they go, I want to be rich? Mm-hmm. How many people do you know go, I want to be rich? I want a million dollars. I want a billion dollars. Do you want a billion dollars or do you want what it can provide you? See, money's money's nothing. Money eliminates emotions. It eliminates your necessity to work hard to pay the mortgage. It eliminates the fear of you not being able to pay your gas bill on Friday. It eliminates the ability for workforce. You don't need to work again. So having money eliminates emotions and reaction. So what you're trying to do is eliminate those pain points. And you think, if I have that money, it'll eliminate those things. Mm -hmm. 
So I try to find out what is the governing reason, the cause behind every request. Hmm. That's amazing. Um, so one of the questions that I love to ask my listen or my guests is, what is one trial that you've had and how did you overcome that trial with triumph? You only, you only succeed by failing. And one of the biggest things I learned as I was interviewing all these billionaires around the planet was that no billionaire has ever failed at anything. They just learned what didn't work. And so while a lot of people are kind of reeling away from, oh my God, that hurt, that didn't work, that was painful, I've lost my money. Rich people lean into it and go, okay, why didn't that work? Why did I lose my money? How come that hurt? They lean into the problem for discovery. Now, I remember 1997, 50th anniversary of Ferrari, and I was uh, engaged to go down to an event in Monte Carlo uh, to celebrate the 50th anniversary of Ferrari. So I'm in Monaco with the largest luxury brand in the planet. It was like the peak, pinnacle of my networking and business uh, placement and goals. Now, if anyone ever meets me, they notice a few things. One, I'm a bald English biker, okay? Uh, I don't have a car. I ride motorcycles. I've got a small collection. I'm always in a black T-shirt. That's me. But this one time, I got scared. I got self-doubt. I went out and I bought a watch that was the same price as a high-end car, okay? I had tailor-made suits, and I bought a vintage Ferrari to impress you. Now, that's the key word. I realized that I was so in doubt of what I looked like, I bought all of these things to impress you. And when I showed up at that party, I was there for like two days. I partied with Arnold Schwarzenegger, Sultan of Brunei, Prince Albert of Monaco. I was with the people of the planet. When I got home and I got my photographs back of this event, there was me in a suit, stood very unnaturally. I felt you know, confined. It was like I was wearing a suit of armor. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't me. I realized from these pictures, I didn't actually go. This, this facade of me went and I missed out on that event. I've often said that was the greatest event that I actually never went to. Mm-hmm. And it threw me in a, such a depression because I realized even though I was pretty successful at what I did and who I was at the time, that doubt had crept into my life. So much so that I sabotaged who I was and what I stood for. And I sold out to try and be someone who you would look at and think is successful rather than standing up and just going, this is me. If you like it, great. If you don't, move along. Mm-hmm. And I saw myself, I was, it literally sent me into a downward spiral. Within two weeks, I had put my suits, and they were really good suits. I had three made. I put them into my cupboard. I liked them, but I went, I'll wear them when I'm wedded to wear them. Do you know I live in Los Angeles now? I gave them to a shelter probably about two years ago. I'd never worn them ever again. I sold my watch within that two weeks and the car within the two weeks. And I stood up and I said to myself, if you don't like this, that's fine. But I ain't going to bend to be someone who I'm not. I am not going to exert any energy on being someone that I'm not. And that was a greatest lesson for what was a very depressing adult time. I love that so much. I have a really good friend that um, he wears shorts and a t-shirt every place and he's very successful, Um, but he's just himself. And I think that is the most amazing kind of person to be around. It's just somebody who can be themselves and not um, 
not putting on a facade, like you say. Now, um, what kind of business are you running right now? Because I heard you mention consulting um, and how can people contact you? So basically for 25 plus years working with the richest brands and people in the planet, um, I released the book Bluefish and the Art of Making Things Happen and then realized I didn't think it'd be successful because I thought to myself, oh, everyone must be doing that. I suddenly realized that people are missing out on the simplest, most impactful things and ways of creating relationships and at the end of the day, money. Mm -hmm. So I started doing Sims Distillery, which is my private inner circle. I got a free Facebook group, an entrepreneur's advantage with Steve Sims. And I coach and I run these events called speakeasies, which are my version of a mastermind. Basically, I want to shake people up. I want to stop them being so smart because you sit there and you go, right, I'm going to do this. But before I do that, I've got to do this, this, this. this. No, focus on what you've got to do first and do that. You know, my job is to get people uncomfortable and then spit them out more impactful. And that's what I do now. I coach, I train, I do the Facebook lives. I have the events. So I'm a very easy guy to find, um, but I'm there to quite simply get you a little bit befuddled and confused and then get you out there to move the needle. That's what I love about you though. I hate it when people sugarcoat things or they tell you, oh, you're doing so great, but they don't give you any valuable advice that you can actually Uh, level up. No good. No good. Now I'm going to tell you what you need to be doing and then you're going to do it and then you're going to go, great. So I find that I've spent years spending rich people's money to give them really interesting cocktail stories, being able to disrupt people and entrepreneurs now so that they can make their own stories far more gratifying. That's amazing. Um, what is your website called or where can we find your website? So you can find me at Steve D Sims and there's only one M in Sims and so make sure you shove the D in there, D for dog or D for dash in, but stevedsims.com. You can go to simsdistillery.com, which is my inner circle. Um, or you can just find me anywhere at Steve D Sims. I'm on LinkedIn, Twitter, um, Instagram is probably my biggest. But you can uh, actually join my community at an entrepreneur's advantage with Steve Sims. Mm-hmm. That's great. And everybody listening to you can find the links all in the show notes. And then if you're watching, you'll be able to see it on the screen, all of Steve's links. Steve, I appreciate you very much. And I'm thankful to have met you for a l- and just talk about different life experiences that you've had. And I think your story is so incredible and encouraging um, because there's a lot of, even the younger generation right now, they're kind of like struggling, trying to figure out how to do things. And they're, they're told you have to go to college and you have to do this and you have to do that. And they're unhappy. So I think that your story is really, um, fascinating. And I always encourage people to go with their passion. And I love that you're passionate about all the things that you're doing. So thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Everybody, thank you so much for listening. Until next week, I'm Patty Catter. Have an amazing weekend. Thank you for listening to Wake Up with Patty Catter. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for all you do. Follow Patty at Patty Catter on Facebook and Instagram. Get social. You can now watch Wake Up with Patty Catter on Amazon TV and Roku. It's the only podcast I listen to. Be sure to check out Patty's apparel line. 
The Patriotic Mermaid at thepatrioticmermaid.com and on social media at The Patriotic Mermaid. I love it. Special thanks to Patty's content creator, Alicia Thompson. Thanks for all that you do. Visit thompsoncreate.com for all your marketing and design inquiries. 